Hello, and welcome to Molly Catherine Reads. I'm Molly Catherine, and on today's episode, I'll be reading a story by a dear friend of mine and a wonderful writer uh, named Jessica S. Carter. Uh, A little bit about Jess. We've known each other for quite a while. Um, We met through the world of fan fiction and read a lot of her stuff, and she's read a great deal of mine. Um, She actually has a novel released on Amazon. You can find it under the title Villainous. And again, her name is Jessica S. Carter. Villainous is a really great novel. It's dark, twisted, uh, more than a time or two, about the difference between good and evil and how that difference is definitely not as simple as uh, black and white. So I definitely recommend you go check out that book. Again, it's Villainous on Amazon under the uh, author Jessica S. Carter. And this uh, short story that I'll be reading today, written by Jess, is a dark little horror story. Um, So disclaimer for some mild uh, graphic content. And without further ado, let's get to the story. This is Deprivation, written by Jessica S. Carter and read by me, Molly Catherine. I've never thought much about falling asleep. It feels like drowning without the struggle. It's the closest to death I may feel without dying. But there's ease to it, an ability to just allow it to happen, day in and day out. The process itself is habitual. The science of our species made it a necessity to occur when our bodies grew tired or needed to shut down due to trauma. For as long as I can remember, it's always been the same. Turning out the lights, crawling under covers, trying to relax, shutting my mind off long enough to wander off into dreams, and then waking up, unsure of the precise moment sleep claimed my conscience always been the same for as long as I've had memories. It even feels good, like stepping backwards from the edge of a cliff as the air cradles you into this elusive nocturnal hibernation. Even the term, falling asleep, it's perfect for the act. You drift off into slumber from routine or pure exhaustion or even force of habit. We need sleep, we need rest, even when we don't want it even when we tell ourselves it's not important, even when our dreams become nightmares and the feeling of falling turns into an indiscernible reality stuck somewhere between almost asleep and nearly awake, when falling is just dropping back into our own body, jolting into our own awareness, suddenly alive, every nerve on fire, every single particle buzzing with the thought of how close we'd been to slipping into the vast forever of slumber, wondering if we're even awake at all. Contemplating if we'd even know how to tell the difference if we never woke up again. Trying to determine if we're sleeping right now. Like I said, I never thought much about falling asleep. Until now. Until I lost the ability altogether. It's been 11 days, 5 hours, and 10 minutes since I've slept. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. The very second you can't close your eyes and sleep is the same second it becomes all you can think about. 
and every single time I go through the routine, turning out the lights, climbing under covers, shutting off my mind long enough to stop my thoughts from keeping me awake, nothing happens. I listen to the clock, to the sounds of the doctors behind the glass, the feeling of them watching, waiting for the symptoms to worsen. They call it the sleeper virus. Thousands of people losing the ability to sleep, staying awake until the lack of it kills them or the symptoms grow severe. The longest-running case stretched on for four months before the worst happened, before the madness took over. After that case, they started the quarantines, because those who had the virus weren't safe from themselves, and those without it weren't safe either, to realize that I had it meant knowing I was going to die because there was no indicative cause, no definitive cure. I could be put into a coma, medically induced, but I was too poor to maintain the bed rest. All of the -the over-the-counter medicines didn't work and nothing stronger would afford me a few moments of drowsiness and not much else. So I volunteered for the experimental trials before I knew that the trials would remain observational and... I would probably die anyway. At least I wouldn't kill anyone. The pin pad by the door makes excessively loud noises. Four numbers in beeping order before the bolt on the door unlocks and in comes Dr. Stanton. She's pretty and empathetic. Her hands are always warm when she checks my vitals. Her eyes are always soft when she asks me the same questions she does every day at two o'clock in the afternoon. How are you today, Nathan? She draws more blood. I'm sure they've taken liters of it already. Same as yesterday. Tired without reprieve. Have you eaten? Same as yesterday and the day before. My stomach is unsettled, but I've eaten what's been brought to me. I motion to the empty trays on the rack near the door. She nods slightly like she isn't committed to the movement. And your vision? She puts the jars into her lab coat pocket before she waves her little flashlight for me to follow. Fine, except when you do that, then it's blurry. We smirk at the same time. She puts away her flashlight. On the scale, please. I oblige, watching the numbers on the digital scale dial up and stop short. Four pounds lighter than yesterday. Six pounds total from two days ago. I sigh. It's probably the stress. I say it for her, and she sighs too, understanding. The more we know, the better prepared we can be. For all those cases that come after me, right, Dr. Stanton? When I'm dead and gone and the virus has a cure, such a martyr I'll make. The smile she gives me is slow-spreading and sad, a contradiction to such a glorious affection. I sit down on the table without her asking. You'll tell me when you start to get other symptoms, won't you, Nathan? I nod. She clicks her ballpoint pen and writes on her little notepad. See you tomorrow, then? Tomorrow. She leaves, and I am left alone to the sound of her fleeing to safety. The sound of the pin pad on my side of the door, the bolt locking me in. The loneliness... By the fourteenth day after diagnosis, I receive my first hallucination. 
It's after three. The clock on the wall ticks along as tediously as ever. I'm staring at the ceiling as I do most days after the television programming becomes a bore. It starts as a dot. Small and round, right in my line of vision I watch it grow. Each time I look away and back to it, it's different. Until it is wide enough to swallow me without resistance. Until looking into the darkness is more menacing than any other fear I could ever imagine. That's when the voice calls out. My name, slow and long on the tongue of some imaginary beast. Nathan. Soft and slow like a lullaby, and then a chuckle, hoarse against my ears. <laughs> a threat. I turn away from it, my eyes close as I rock, cradling my own shoulders as I try to get a grip, as I try to make it stop by sheer force of will. It can't be real, playing like a mantra between my own ears, not loud enough to drown out the sounds of the voice calling from the growing abyss above my head. I'm not ready for this phase of the virus, the visual and auditory hallucinations. My eyes snap open, the clock says five. I'm not ready for this the loss of time. I don't tell Dr. Stanton, because if I do, she won't come to visit me anymore, and I'm already so lonely in my room. She comes in at the start of the fourth week, as she has every day before, at two. How are you today, Nathan? Fatigued. She doesn't take blood. I'm too weak. Have you eaten? I nod. My stomach howls begrudgingly. I think so. The food on the tray by the door is half-eaten, pushed around to look as though I ate enough for sustenance. She nods solemnly. The sad smile is now a thin, assuming line across her pretty face. And your vision? Her flashlight is unyielding as she shines it slowly from left to right, and I pull away, blinded by the purity of it blurring my eyesight. Okay. She motions toward the scale and I step on it, cringing as the climb it usually takes seems quicker. You're down 25 pounds, Nathan. I shrug. Maybe it's the stress. Dr. Stanton shakes her head, staring at me as if I'd changed right before her eyes. Have you had any other symptoms? I'm instantly angry at the audacity of her tone. Don't you watch me all day? Don't you see what I do in here? Why ask me questions when you watch me continuously? She writes something on her pad full of notes about me, about others they are bound to keep in the facility. Tomorrow we will add a few things to your regimen. See you then. I cross my arms and look away from her, upset. Fine. Tomorrow. She leaves me in silence. The mirror is a visage I do not face often. It sits above the sink in the bathroom of my room. I stare at the stranger in the mirror as if he were a relative I had not met before. Sunken eyes and hallowed cheeks, patches of hair gone from my head where a thick, full mane grew once before. My skin once had a glow touched by the sun, but now it was dull lifeless in the wake of my windowless room. 
Tomorrow came in the same amount of time it took to come the days before it, and Dr. Stanton came along with a surly man by the name of Dr. Reginald. He didn't smile, and his eyes were full of pity, and I did not like him. He watched from afar as Dr. Stanton performed her regular tests, and he didn't speak until Dr. Stanton finished all the things she did on all those other days. "'Mr. Reed, can you count backwards from one hundred by threes for me?' "'Why?' It came out snappy. I rubbed at the scab forming from the last time she took blood. It was raw on the inside bend of my elbow. I began counting, slowly, monotonous to my own ears, more out of habit than effort. Moments passed and the counting continued, both of the doctors watching intently as I made my way backwards. My vision blurred. I persevered. I blinked, suddenly assaulted by the quiet of the room. Why did you stop? It's Dr. Stanton's soft voice, louder than the ticking clock. I... I had no answer. I forgot what I was doing. They stared at each other, coming to some unspoken conclusion before Dr. Stanton clicked her ballpoint pen and put her notepad away. Dr. Reginald will be taking over from here, Nathan. I didn't want her to go, but I didn't want her to know how untethered I was. Dr. Reginald waited for her to leave, settling on the chair by my barely eaten plate of food by the door. He pulled a box out from beneath the two-seater table by my closet, and from it came a versatile set of board games. I just want you to play a few games with me. I obliged. We didn't speak. By the sixth week... The scab on my inner elbow turned into a gaping wound, weeping pus and reeking of rotting flesh. I had picked at it long enough over time that it stretched both up and down my arm. Dr. Stanton hadn't returned, and I had lost most of my hair as well as most of the fat left on my body. Dr. Reginald had come every day, playing mundane games until I faded out of the moment and he left me to my daydreaming. Today was no different whichever day today was. I had irritably stopped playing checkers, unsure what colors I was seeing on the board. The checkered squares making me dizzy as I tried to jump my pieces over Dr. Reginald's. He watched, one hand on the taser holstered on his hip, a weapon he had deemed his contingency plan. Your gums are bleeding. I looked behind the doctor to the shadow cast in the corner of the room. The voices were ever-present, trying to still my rampant and unsettled mind. Both nurturing and dangerous, the voices kissed me with truths of what life was when you were fully aware of every moment, every plane of existence. Are you tired, Nathan? I nodded at the darkness, waiting for the being to step forward and grace me with its true form. Her wings emerged first, dirt and straw and murky, bloodied bone jutting out in all directions. As she walked into the ambient light of my room, I could see where the wings connected with her torso, through her mangled ribcage, open and devoid of life. Her face was shrouded by her hanging wet hair, long enough to cradle her exposed and bleeding blue heart, pierced by the originating carnage of her seemingly man-made wings. This is what you are, Nathan. This is what you were meant to be. 
She lifted her head then, staring back at me in all her glory, her eyes gone from her skull, and in their wake an eternity of stars and endless universe, of now and then, of here and never. I wept at her beauty, her visage, a visage of perfection to my weary eyes. When time comes, leave behind your flesh, Nathan, and bring with you an offering. And as quickly as she had come, she was gone, and in front of me was nothing as it had been before. Dr. Reginald was gone, and I was, once again, alone. My next attempt at the mirror produced nothing recognizable. The darkness under my eyes was embedded so deeply in my skin that it felt like weathered leather to touch. My skin was so pale that I looked skeletal, barely human. Many of my teeth had fallen out, my gums eroded and deteriorated beyond repair, and with the few teeth I still had left I had nibbled the first layer of skin from both my arms. To the doctors, I was untouchable, hideous, on the brink. They had come and gone in groups, with tasers and weapons at the ready, tape recorders in hand as they whispered lies and theories to themselves about nothing they knew about. I should have been dead, they said. It's been almost three months, they murmured. And the angel from the ceiling whispered promises of peace, and I promised her my offering when time came, and I was ready to ascend. Time is irrelevant. Days blur together as they poke and prod my starving corpse as I lie awake without reprieve from my thoughts. Time is everywhere, and everywhere is time. Dr. Stanton is with the group today. Her eyes are still soft. I cannot tell if I am still in this hell that is not knowing. If she is a figment of the reality I've been taught in sleep, Sleep, I've learned, is the time called life before the time known as awareness, what humans call death. What I've learned is true existence. The angel is in the room, screaming in some unknown language that warms my barely beating heart. She waits for her offering, so I take it. I take it all to give to her. Seconds matter only to those that measure existence in time. I can see with my new eyes. I can smell the very fibers of the floor beneath me, of their decaying bodies. She is all that is left now. Dr. Stanton with her soft eyes and warm hands. She cries in the corner of the room, too shocked to move and escape, or too proud to release what she keeps muttering to herself is a monster. Me. A monster? I am perfect. The slaughter of her colleagues has her in shock, but she doesn't understand as she should. She doesn't see the fringes of her mere existence. She cannot look past time or measure to accept the fate of omnipresence. She won't release me from this prison. She is ready to die to keep me bound to this room. Why have you done this, Nathan? she whimpers. Because this is what we are supposed to be. This is what we truly are, don't you see? She remains quiet, 
Her body shakes with sobs. I pick up a broken table leg and I walk toward her, my frail body somehow majestic flesh hanging from my malnutritioned bones, my swollen belly sticking out as gases begin to bubble in search of food. I could no longer stand straight, my spine too weak to support my broken body, my rib cage jutting out in accusation at me, angrily. Somehow, my flesh was still alive. I was only alive in this fashion because I had not offered the angel all she asked, and she was waiting. I raised the broken table leg as high as I could, and I smashed it down over Dr. Stanton's head until she wept no more. And I crumpled to the floor after, spent of all my energy. I didn't cry. I felt no guilt. I had no reason to. Life had been but a dream, and I was done sleeping. The end. This has been Molly Catherine Reads with special guest author Jessica S. Carter. Thank you for listening.